0: Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, a strong and powerful, Jeff Porter. Jeff, are you ready to do this?
1: I'm ready, George. Happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Let's let us do this. Jeff is a CFP. He is a CFA. He's a principal and chief investment officer at Sullivan, Brouillette, Spiros, and Blaney. Excited to have you on. Jeff, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do.
1: Sure. I'll try to give you kind of a uh, quick summary of my journey and hit kind of uh, the key points. Uh, born and raised in northern Virginia, I have not spread my wings too uh, much. I went down to University of Virginia just two hours south uh, to study business there and then came right back to start my career at Arthur Anderson uh, when that was still around, um, but quickly pivoted to personal finance from there. Uh, I started on the brokerage side of the business, uh, kind of establishing my own book of business as a financial advisor. Uh, didn't really like that. Uh, a little too salesy for me, a little too product driven. Um, so I moved over to where I am now, which is uh, Sullivan, Bruett, Spiros, and Blaney, uh, SBSB. Uh, we are a registered investment advisor, comprehensive wealth manager. Uh, do four things really uh, comprehensive deep dive financial planning. Uh, We manage money, obviously, about uh, $4.5 billion. Uh, We have a tax department that does tax strategy and compliance work. And uh, then we also help institutions, uh, reserves, uh, foundations, endowments, uh, retirement plans, uh, et cetera. So I started here about 16 years ago now, um, really on the financial planning side, as you mentioned, uh, I have the CFP, so um, did a lot of my work on the planning side, cutting my teeth there, uh, but was also involved in, the, in our uh, investment policy committee, which sets investment strategy for all our clients because I have, uh, as you mentioned, as well, the, the CFA. Um, so the first 10, eleven, 12 years of my career was doing more planning than, than kind of investment work. Uh, but then about five years ago, I uh, got the chief investment officer role, and now I'm doing more of the investment side uh, and relying more on my team members to help with the the planning work. Um, and that kind of brings us to today, you know, living in uh, Arlington, Virginia, with my wife who works for Accenture, and we got two kids, and we're dealing with virtual learning and all the drama uh, that's around that, just like, like everybody else.
0: Yes dealing with all the drama that is around that so uh, it, it it's, it's interesting right life life is a funny and interesting thing working at Arthur Anderson, which is such an iconic uh, such an iconic uh, organization institution in in the United States and certainly certainly accenture is 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 as well um, how is how is the home learning going with uh, two very capable parents?
1: busy and crazy and fast-paced and putting out fires. You know, we're all in separate bedrooms. So I got, you know, I guess I mentioned two kids. So you got four computers running, uh, working on the bandwidth uh, of, you know, the Internet. And uh, I have a 9- and 11-year-old, so I'm blessed that they're good ages to, you know, take care of themselves. Uh, They're old enough to take care of themselves and know what's going on. Uh, they're not too old where they're missing some really critical years, and they're not too young where my wife and I need to be kind of handholding uh, the whole time. So uh, certainly, a lot of people have it worse, and you know, feel blessed with that.
0: Sure, it's all—it's all a matter of perspective, Jeff. So, <laughs> so yeah. So the CFP uh, combined with the CFA, I'm—I'm—I'm am I'm, I'm always I'm, I'm in, certainly impressed by both designations, but uh, understand that. Uh, there's so much more complexity, and it's. I think the CFA is such a difficult um, designation to achieve, so congratulations on that. And then it's talking brutal. about you know, financial planning and portfolio management, um, how, how do you think about those things? Are they mutually exclusive? Do they come together?
1: Uh, great question. They completely come together. Um, I think people fall down on the investing front because they're, they're not connecting it to their financial plan, or they're not connecting it to their, uh, their personality, and it needs to be, right? You know, if, if it's just about I'm happy when it's going up, I'm unhappy when it's going down, and you don't have a greater understanding of why you're investing the way you do, um, how it connects to potential returns to achieve your goals. How it connects to cash flow needs or savings, uh, how it connects to um, risk tolerance. Um, If you're not making a lot of connections then you don't trust it Uh, and every investment you know is going to uh, go through good and bad time periods and so much about investing is not hurting yourself, not blowing yourself up, and so if you can Uh, You know, know what the big picture is and if you can know, um, you know, if you're doing that right, you know, making sure that you're running tax efficiently in your investments and you're locating assets uh, in various accounts properly and you're investing in the right things according to your tax bracket and all that, you know, it's all combined. And I think'm I'm, I'm very you know happy that I got the experience and the designations on both sides of the fence the planning and the, and the investing uh, just because I think it it helps just bring it all together for clients
0: yeah certainly certainly agree with that and I think that that's that's good language you used oftentimes uh, if we're not careful we will blow ourselves up from an investing standpoint our, our brains are, are wonderful tools that we have but they can be weapons of mass destruction in, 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 in difficult times. So, That's right. Being able to manage that. So as you were talking about that, what, what went through my head is how much, how much time do you think that, that, that clients need to be devoting to their money and, and their investing? I'm, I'm sure that up front there's a lot more time is, is putting the initial plan together. But how about from a maintenance standpoint?
1: And are, are you focused, uh, is the question more focused around investing uh, in terms of how much time to put in or uh, kind of more of the planning or um, what? Um, yeah,
0: that was that was a super big question, and I appreciate that the answer is going to be uh, individual. Um, but just how, how, yes, for for both, how often are you encouraging people to revisit their plan and to be keeping an eye on, they're investing, and, and, and just all the moving parts.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, financial planning is pretty broad and comprehensive. You know, it involves organization. It involves, um, you know, updating your, your models and your projections. It involves uh, education planning, tax strategies, you know, keeping up with the state, you know, risk management of various insurance Uh, areas you know if you're charitable it involves that you know benefits so the planning part you know is something that requires a lot of attention and due diligence uh, just to make sure that you know everything is is clean and buttoned up Um, then there's the investing side which probably requires less attention Um, more you want to invest usually on a thematic basis over a multi-year period in terms of what your thoughts are how the environment is over uh the coming years and then rebalance or make small tweaks or adjust uh especially if there's you know major changes to the market um you know or if something just you know there's a game changer yeah you know what we can probably talk about later is the game changer of interest rates now being at zero Mm -hmm. you know that's that requires immediate attention and thought in the portfolio but if things are riding along and you have a good plan and allocation uh then that the investing side doesn't necessarily need attention uh every single month of uh, every single year Um, but the planning side there's usually something that pops up one of one or a couple of those items that i mentioned that just need some some monitoring especially if, you know, rules change, you know, like this year, you know, with, you know, a whole bunch of uh, legislation that's changed, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And as human beings, we're always doing something else. So gotta <laughs> got to keep a close eye on that. I heard this, uh, I heard a funny, what I perceive to be funny, little uh, anecdote a couple of years ago. And it said, investments are like a bar of soap. The uh, The more you touch them, the smaller they get.
1: I heard that too. But I forget whether it was Ken Fisher or uh, uh, some. I heard it somewhere, either on some podcast or something. But yeah, I think it it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we we are prone to make errors, um, and uh, if we can eliminate the errors and let the market do its work, then you're usually in good shape.
0: Yeah, yeah, amen. So we are in this very, very unique environment right now with with. Interest rates being zero or close to zero, maybe even negative interest rates, and obviously everything going on with with COVID and and unrest um, and lots of conversations going on in the country. How are you? How are you approaching this time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's a really important time to sit back and think. Uh, as investors and potentially adjust their portfolios. So in, in oftentimes, as we just mentioned, there's, there's not a lot to do, and sometimes there's some adjustments that need to be made. Um, you know, the, I've, I've seen a lot of polls and, and, uh, out there and questions about w- uh, what people think they're going to return in the coming five to ten years. For example, there's a Schroeder study global investment study that kind of just came out that's talking about people expecting stocks to return uh, double digits, you know, 10, 11, 12 in the, in the United States, 15%, et cetera. And um, that scares me a little bit because if people are planning on those type of returns, they might be disappointed. Um, and we see this often because generally what people do is they look back over the past year, three or five and say, you know, what has, in this case, the stock market done? And if it's been a great period, they just extrapolate that and say, oh, well, that's what I should expect. But unfortunately, there's only so much juice you can squeeze from the stock market without it going into bubble territory. And we know how bubbles kind of, uh, end, um, so we saw this in the late 90s uh you remember you know stocks were going up at a crazy level you know 20 30 40 percent a year and people entered the year 2000 thinking it was going to be the same high double digit return expectations and they're they're making retirement plans uh etc on that and what happened the S&P, for example was negative for 10 years uh, and there's a number of you know, well-known, good institutions that were saying back then that the S&P was going to return flat, it was not going to re- get any gains for a 10-year period, and they were essentially lapped off the stage because of what just happened in the, in the late 90s. Um, so you know, here we essentially have ourselves uh, a what I would call a low-return environment both in stocks and in bonds. Uh, as, we, as we just mentioned. Um, and the way that probably you know, the best educational kind of way I can present it uh, for listeners is what's called the building blocks approach, uh, which is a fairly good uh, track record with estimating what investors are going to get from their investments over the next 10 years, for example. So the stock market returns are made up of three things. Uh, dividends, so you're going to get your dividends, Um, they're made up of earnings growth, essentially that's that's what you're buying, right, you're buying earnings when you're buying a company, Um, and so the earnings growth is the second part of it, and then it's change in valuations, essentially, is someone down the road, for example, in 10 years going to pay more for that earnings growth, because kind of that product, or is someone going to pay less? So if we start with dividends, you know, a lot of people say, well, how am I going to know what dividends I'm going to get over the next 10 years? Well, by looking at the current dividend yield, that's a great forecaster of what you're going to get over the next 10 years. And the dividend for the S&P 500 is a little less than 2%. So it's around 1, 1.8, I believe. Uh, but let's just round that up to 2%. Okay. So we got 2%. Next, we got earnings growth, and again the question is how the heck am I going to know what type of companies are going to be producing what over the next 10 years? Well, you look back in history and the S&P 500 earnings growth has been fairly stable from decade to decade, and the reason for that is that it's tied to economic growth. And economic growth is a big oil tanker, you know, that that can barely move quickly, mm-hmm. except for this year. You know, COVID, <laughs> COVID can, uh, can, uh, can throw it for a loop, but we even see this year GDP bouncing back into the trend. So if you look at, for example, the 1900, 1900 to 1949, earnings growth was at 5.6%. So call it kind of the pre-World War II growth rate. Post-World War II growth rate when everything was humming, you know, baby boomers were were coming through the system, everything was perfect, Um, it was growing at 7.4%. So uh, a slight adjustment up from 5.6 to 7.4. And then since the year 2000, for the past 20 years, uh, it's been growing at 4.1%, so lower. And a lot of people think it's because of the massive debt that we've accumulated. Mm -hmm. so demographics. So, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be lower than 4% going ahead, but let's be really, really generous, George. Let's just take a little higher than the average of all those growth rates and say that earnings growth over the next 10 years is going to be 6%. Okay. So we got 2% in dividends. We got 6% in earnings growth that again is generous. So if someone 10 years from now is going to pay you roughly the same amount, the same value for that earnings growth, then you could expect 8%. The problem is, is that right now, people are paying roughly 31 times that earnings growth, that trend of earnings growth. And the average, the long-term average throughout history is 16. So, again, let's be helpful (laughs) and say that some reason it's, you know, it would never go back to 16, never back to the average of what people pay. Let's throw it in the low 20s, low to mid 20s in terms of what people would pay for those earnings. So then you have a movement from current 31 down to 22. That means a loss annually of 3% for that part of the equation. So you got 2% dividends, You got 6% earnings growth is 8, minus 3%, and that gets you in a range of 5% annual return expectations, you know, over the next 10 years for the S&P 500. And if I wasn't generous, then, you know, it's somewhere between 0 and 5%. So that is kind of the simple math of how stocks, you know, the returns of stocks, And unfortunately, you know, people are expecting 10-15 when the math says there's just no way you can get there. And then you have bonds, you have the 10-year treasury giving you a whopping 0.7% annually. Um, So that stinks. Um, And if you take on a little bit more risk and maybe go to corporate bonds or mortgage bonds, et cetera, let's call it bonds in the one to three percent return estimate for the next 10 years so you have the classic 60 percent stock, 40 percent bonds u.s centric estimated return of around three to four percent range over the next 10 years and that's troublesome for a lot of people uh, uh, because you know that's not even including inflation right. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what we call a low-return environment. It's happened before. Um, and so I'll pause there before talking about the potential solution. Um, but does did all that kind of make sense in terms of kind of how I got there?
0: Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate breaking down all the individual elements, and it does. So So, yeah. what do we do, Jeff? What do we do? <laughs> that is the question. Um,
1: that's the most important thing. So if you are let's take the stock side real quick kind of the simple adjustments uh, if you were to do a similar formula or use some of the, some other you know methods that have been very good at estimating long-term returns the numbers look much better than that kind of 3 4 5% that may come from large company US stocks they look better for small company stocks they look better for international developed stocks and they look better for emerging market stocks, and they look better for some of the beaten down value-oriented kind of Warren Buffett type of stocks uh, as well in the marketplace. So making sure you're diversified outside just what has been working the best over the past couple years uh, is important in terms of upping that potential earnings for your stock portion of your portfolio. So that's, that's kind of a fairly easy adjustment. Okay. Um, the bonds is a little dip, more difficult. So bonds are still gonna have a good place in people's portfolios uh, because they provide ballast. You know, after all, you know, when stocks are going down, that is usually a deflationary event for the economy. And that means interest rates would continue to go down and in this environment potentially even negative and so that still helps from a diversification standpoint not as much as it used to when interest rates could go from five percent down to zero you know we're at such a low level now but there's still some benefits there for ballast um the issue And the decision-making comes from there's a lot of people that don't like the volatility of stocks or they're older and they have a ton of money and they don't want to play the game. They want to, you know, have a little bit more conservative growth. So let's say they have 60% or 50% or 70% in bonds. That's where you have such a big portion of your portfolio that may generate, you know, one, two, 3% annually. And that may, you know, not sit well. So we have a couple choices. One is if your financial plan works at a lower return environment, then you may not need to do anything. It may just be fine. You, you keep, you know, where you are, you're happy with your volatility, of your portfolio, and you're achieving your goals. Um, if you're not able to achieve your goals, then another thing you could do is just accept more stock market risk. Uh, shave some off of bonds, put it into stocks, you know, even through the math that we went through on the United States, it's still better than bonds. Yeah. Um, and so that's one way to, to do it. But we also know, as we talked about, you know, 10 minutes ago, people blow themselves up. <laughs> and will generally blow, blow themselves up by being over their skis and risk and so that may not be a solution or it may only be a small part of the solution for many people so then there's probably the third option that involves a little bit more thought and that is replacing bonds with parts of the market they that may be different for investors that may make people feel a little bit less comfortable so one kind of more Somewhat normal uh, way of doing things would just be replacing some high-quality bonds with some higher-income vehicles uh, or strategies or funds that invest in preferred stocks or uh, a mixture of high-yield bonds or you know global real estate or uh, option strategies that you know sell options to try to generate income, trying to get in that income of the three-four five percent level that people are used to getting from bonds. Um, you know, that would increase the risk a little bit but not as much as a pure stock, you know, just adding to stocks. So that's one thing that some people could do. If people want to keep a good portion of their uh, money in bonds, another thing to do you might want to do is is carve out a smaller portion of your portfolio and put it in hedge, uh, sorry, in inflation hedge vehicles, but powerful inflation hedge vehicles. Because if you're going to have a lot in bonds, what's your greatest risk? Your greatest risk is inflation. Uh, because not only do you lose to inflation uh, in terms of your purchasing power, but that also means that interest rates tend to go up and you tend to lose principal on your bonds. Right. You might want to think of treasury inflation protection bonds. You may want to think of other currencies such as gold, hard currencies, or silver, or you know for some of the you know your younger listeners you know uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, Um, you know, and and other things such as commodities, uh, commodity-backed companies and stocks uh, infrastructure, you know, th- those type of investments really help with inflation. So if it occurs and if that hurts your bond portfolio, then at least that portfolio might be supercharged or that portion of your portfolio might be supercharged. Nice. So that's, that's another option. Another option would be private real estate. Uh, everybody, you know, probably knows about REITs, publicly traded REITs. Um, that are on the stock exchange that have tickers just like mutual funds and everything else. But publicly traded REITs are as volatile as stocks. So that doesn't help an investor who gets spooked by the volatility because it's valued every day, every second uh, by the market. Private real estate uh, allows you to invest in commercial real estate, you know industrial, um, you know, think, think of the warehouses of you know Amazon. Uh, think multifamily apartment complexes. Certainly there's various retail uh, commercial property out there as well. But that is valued by appraisals, just like your house. And those appraisals are done much slower. And so the volatility of holding commercial real estate in a private wrapper is uh, is much better from a volatility standpoint and you're also getting income right now of around five to six percent in many of those uh, types of funds because they're able to use this low interest rate environment to their favor, right? They're borrowing money at lower interest rates and they're charging rent to companies that are, you know, much higher. So they're able to get to That five to six percent type of income that uh, everybody used to get in the good old days of bonds.
0: Right. Nice. And I love now, it. Just quickly,
1: the last the last yeah. uh, option is hedge strategies, hedge funds, which uh, uh, you know m- may be scary to a lot of people because they're black boxes, they're high fees, they may be tax inefficient. You know, so there's definitely cons to that but there's also some strategies out there that are able to get, you know, or have a goal of four, five, six type percent returns with bond-like volatility. And, uh, you know, that might be an option. So all those kind of things I kind of throw out um, because I think it's worth noodling on for a lot of investors.
0: I love it. I appreciate that. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? How can people engage with you?
1: Yeah, so I'm sure you have show notes so you, uh, we kind of kind of put your our uh youtube links and stuff like that on there but probably the best place to start is just our website uh it's www.sbsb as as in sam boy sam boy llc.com and uh yeah and then kind of the rest of the stuff can probably be in the show notes
0: excellent well, Savage if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Jeff your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to sbsbllc.com. Check out all the great resources on the site, and I'll list all the social handles in so in, in, in the notes of the show as well. Thanks again, Jeff.
1: George, it's been great. Uh, thanks for allowing me to nerd out here. <laughs> um, always talk about this stuff.
0: I love it. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Spending too much time on social? Is your daily screen time over two hours? Are you a little bit overweight? Not saving enough money? Any or all of these are familiar. Strive could be for you. The Strive two-week online boot camp will help you to detox your mind, body, and money